Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. It's great to have you all back with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, We've got a lot to talk about, both uh, in national political news as well as state politics. And uh, we're going to start with the state uh, today, although a little bit later in the show, we want to get to uh, President Trump and uh, the tactics that he's now employing in his campaign, pitting black voters against whites, uh, talking about law and order, calling Black Lives Matter, Marchers, thugs, and uh, it's a uh, it, it, it's a, a development that's been coming for a while, and we're going to discuss the latest in uh, the president's effort uh, to appeal to white voters right now. But let's start um, first by introducing our panel. It's Wednesday, which means my partner today is Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Greg. How are you holding up? We are down to the last eight weeks of the campaign, and you continue to work harder than any other journalist I know out there. Eight weeks left, and remember, we st- I keep on saying this, but we still have a January runoff in, a, in one of the, at least one of the Senate races to prepare for. So it's going to be a long haul, so we've all got to get arrested. I went out of town for the Labor Day holiday slash my anniversary trip which I usually take without the kids, but this time we dragged the two kids along with us. So it wasn't much of a vacation, but we had at least, <laughs> at least some rest. Well, congratulations. I think we wished you a happy anniversary last week, but once again, happy anniversary uh, uh, to you and your wife. Um, so w- what is the date of that runoff in January? Remind everybody of that. And that's the runoff that we imagine is going to happen in Senate race number two, the jungle election that's got like 21 candidates. That's the Kelly Leffler, Doug Collins, Raphael Warnock, Matt Lieberman. Uh, that's all of those candidates. It's the first week of January, isn't it, Greg? Yeah, it looks like January 5th, if I remember correctly. And Fifth, um, yeah, yeah. You're, I think that's you're right. exactly right. And there's no chance at, at anyone getting a majority of the vote. So here we go. Right. Right. Um, we've also got with us today Professor Andra Gillespie, Dr. Gillespie, political science professor, of course, at Emory University. She's also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute on Race and Difference. Um, Andra, you're such a great data person. I'm wondering how, as, a, as somebody who really looks closely at data, data how— does this election, do you perceive this election differently than a lot of us do? In other words, are, what do you look at in terms of uh, numbers of registered voters, how people voted in, uh, in on, on June 9th, what you expect come up? Do you look at it through the data lens? Um, I guess I would. I mean, I wouldn't compare June 9th to, uh, you know, to what we're going to see happen in November, even though there might be some clues that we can gather from that. I mean, I'm probably paying more attention to error and sort of thinking about how that limits interpretation. Paying more attention to error? Error, yeah. So, you know, it always irritates me when people are like, oh, my gosh, one of the candidates is up by three. They have a clear lead. And it's like, yeah, no, they don't, (laughs) usually based on the margin of error. So we should be more honest in terms of how we report those things. Yeah, I, I think that's really important for all of us. 
on this show, certainly, to remember as we look at polling uh, in the weeks ahead. Um, Mary Margaret Oliver is back with us today. Of course, she's a Democratic legislator, House member from Decatur. Mary Margaret, I was thinking about you early this morning when I was reading the latest issue of The New Yorker and came across the, the news, which I knew, but seeing it again, that the New Yorker Festival will be all digital this year. This is this is your favorite event of the year. It's you go to favorite, New York every year for this thing. My favorite weekend in Manhattan, which I will not be able to enjoy this year, but I will be signing in virtually and figuring out how they sell tickets to a Zoom event. That's what I'll be yeah. figuring out. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, I'll be interested in hearing how that goes for you, but thank you for uh, being with us today. And Edward Lindsay uh, is with us as well. Uh, You all uh, are familiar with him on the show. Edward, a former Republican state representative uh, for the city of Atlanta, now the government affairs head for the Georgia government relations practice in the the world's largest (laughs) law firm, Edward Denton's. How are you doing, Edward? I'm doing just fine. Uh, you know, we, we, as we head into uh, what should be a rather interesting election season. Yeah. Okay. Um, Greg, let's start with the news conference that Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger had yesterday, um, in which he, I think, surprised uh, uh, many people by saying that his office is investigating one about. 1,000 Georgians who his office believes double voted, cast ballots by absentee vote, and then walked into their polling places and voted again. Um, He said the breakdown of those voters was about 60% Democrat, 40% Republican. He reminded people that double voting in Georgia intentionally is a felony. And here's the quote. A double voter knows exactly what they're doing, diluting the votes of each and every voter that follows the law. Those that make the choice to game the system are breaking the law, and as Secretary of State, I will not tolerate it. Uh, The Democrats responded by saying he was blaming on voters the chaos of an election system that simply didn't work properly. Uh, Greg, what do you make of all this? Raffensperger's given us virtually no details, uh, but he's already uh, casting doubt on the legitimacy of absentee balloting, uh, playing along, I think, with the Republicans who, uh, certainly out of the White House, who feel absentee balloting is uh, ripe for fraud. Yeah, I mean, first off, uh, we have to remember that this is under investigation. There's no evidence of any sort of malicious intent that he outlined. And, and when pressed by my colleague Mark Nisi and other reporters who are who were at that press conference, he couldn't come up with, he didn't He didn't disclose any evidence of any sort of malicious intent there. Um, what we're already hearing from not just Democrats, but also poll workers, we're saying that, you know, it, when we remember the chaos and the, the meltdown of the June primary, um, you know, those of us who were out there covering it, talking to poll workers and volunteers who couldn't get through to the Secretary of State's office. And so we're hearing from some of them saying that they couldn't reach anyone for hours on Election Day and they had no choice but to have mm-hmm. voters sign an affidavit and let them to let them vote. And so part of it's not not necessarily voters who might have been trying to double vote, but who 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 were just trying to make sure their their ballot was was counted um, and who might have also been. I mean, now there's there's the, the President Trump is pushing information 
um, that folks should should make sure they vote uh, uh, absentee and in person. And um, he's been thoroughly reminded that that is illegal and that no one should double vote. But there's a lot of swirl of misinformation out there, and there's a concern that um, that that the Secretary of State's office could be taking advantage of of, of this situation. Mary Margaret, I want to ask you and then let you respond to uh, what Greg was just saying as well. But I believe the Secretary of State said that they think there were as many as 150,000 voters who asked for absentee ballots, went to the polling place because they weren't certain what happened, whether they got their ballots, whether they voted or not. uh, And then they voted in, tried to vote in person. There's a larger pool. And I'm not quite sure, you may know better than I, exactly what that pool represents. And, but he singled out about 1,000 people who he says intentionally voted twice. The most consistent phone call I got uh, the day before Election Day and Election Day on June 9th was from a voter who says, I have submitted my absentee ballot, but I, my voter page doesn't tell me if it's received. I'm not going to not vote. I will vote. I'm going to the polling place. And I think that's exactly what happened. People could not get verification that for the, because the precinct was calling, wouldn't answer. The, my voter page wasn't confirming receipt. They went and they voted as they were instructed to do, as Greg said. The Republicans are flat out desperate for some proof of fraud in voting. The president talks about it every day, and there is no evidence. So for Raffensperger to come out yesterday and say he knows these people intentionally committed a felony is totally irresponsible. Here's my question. Has uh, evidence of fraud been investigated? Has it been indicted? Has it been proven? Has somebody been convicted? When Raffensperger can tell me the answers to those facts that results in a conviction after an investigation, after an indictment, after a trial, then I'll be willing to listen. Otherwise, they're desperate to prove some element of fraud, and it sounds so false to me. Quite frankly, um, I, I, I have a, a different take on, on what he was doing, which was trying to warn folks that if you're going to vote by absentee, uh, make sure that your vote gets counted rather than showing up and voting twice, which is a problem uh, in these sort of situations. What you have to keep in mind, though, and, and Raffensperger's office has been working toward making uh, it easier and more convenient and more reliable to vote by absentee. Let's not forget what he's been doing over the last few months. The fact of the matter is, let's go back to June. Historically, uh, only around 5 6 7% of voters in Georgia vote by absentee. That's what, It was 6% in 2018 general election. By contrast, in the primary uh, in June, it was over 50% of the voters voted by absentee. We should expect uh, a similar percentage to vote by absentee this time. Already, uh, according to the Secretary of State's office, somewhere around 900,000 people have already uh, applied for an absentee ballot. Uh, and you know, and, and the Secretary of State has taken affirmative steps to make it easier to vote by absentee this this time out. He set up an online portal for folks to vote by, uh, rather to uh, to apply for a ballot by absentee. That's been up for a little over a week, a week and a half, I believe. And already, over 115,000 people have have used that vehicle 
to make applications by absentee. He's also uh, working with local uh, election boards to, to uh, have secure 24-7 places for people to come and drop off their vote by absentee. What we need to be doing uh, in a bipartisan fashion from this point forward, uh, and I think Mary Margaret and, and Andre and the rest of us will all agree, is to is to accept the fact that voters are going to want to vote by absentee, a, a large percentage of them are. And we want people to, to be able to cast their vote, have confidence their vote got counted, and in the end, regardless of who wins and who loses, to have confidence in the outcome. And that's what we should be focusing on rather than taking shots. And, and, you know, and I hear what President Trump does, and I'm not particularly crazy about that. I'm not particularly crazy when Democrats take shots either. I just want folks on a bipartisan fashion to, to help make people have confidence in the outcome on November 3rd. You know, I would, argue, I would actually argue that this actually is evidence of having confidence in the system. So if we listen to the hyperbolizing that President Trump is doing, right, it's just not founded by what we're seeing here on the ground. So, I mean, the first thing is that it's a thousand uh, votes that are in, or a thousand people whose votes are in question, right? That's actually pretty negligible. And that's what I've been saying and other people have been saying all along is that it's not that voter fraud is zero, but that it's usually so small that it doesn't actually influence the outcome um, of an election. And the fact that there's an investigation, the fact that they can detect it, even if it wasn't on June 9th, but the fact that their audit actually shows that there may be some evidence of double counting that needs uh, you know, further examination, I think is evidence of the fact that the system is working. So if somebody is doing this maliciously, they're probably going to be able to, to, to get caught. Um, with it, so you know, I completely agree with 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 uh, with Mary Margaret that there are some people who maybe just wanted to make sure that they voted um, and went about it the wrong way. And so I think what the efforts need to happen at both the Secretary of State's office and at the local office is one to make sure that absentee ballot applications get processed um, and that the reports go up soon. And so it was incumbent upon voters to turn in their stuff early, especially if they already know who they're going to vote for. But then also. Uh, to make sure that we're helping people with that process. And then, you know, the thing that I would actually probably say is partisan is the way that you could potentially weaponize the breakdown in terms of whether it was Democratic or Republican ballots. I think we all have to remember that this state doesn't have uh, party registration, so anybody could have pulled a ballot. We don't know who was actually a Democrat or who was a Republican. Yeah. It's also not surprising given the fact that the Democrats had more competitive primaries this time around that you would actually pull more Democratic um, uh, Democratic ballots that could you know, be sort of potentially problematic in the case. One follow-up that's interesting I learned in our investigation, the House Government Affairs investigation of the June 9th uh, set of problems was a reform that uh, Colorado has done. Uh, they allow people to drive by their precinct and drop off their absentee ballot. Um, and that has become the most popular way that people submit their ballot in Colorado. It's kind of a, an activity to, uh, there's uh, election judges, election officials, bipartisan outside the precincts that take the ballots, put it securely in how they treat ballots. I have urged the Secretary of State to consider that reform as a way to ease this last minute panic that people legitimately had before June 9th. I agree that the portal, Ed, I believe, I agree that the portal is going to ease at least one significant step of the blockage that uh, occurred for absentee ballots for June 9th. 
Uh, it's been very successful in other states. There are other reforms that other states have done, like the drive-by, drop your ballot at the precinct. Uh, we're in a curve right now of modernization, and we have a panic, a pandemic. So um, I think that arguing that a thousand out of three million people intentionally, maliciously committed a felony is hyperbole. Um, well, all right, I, I know add, you want to jump back in, Edward. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. If I could add one other thing that I think would be helpful, Mary Morgan and I have actually uh, heard discussions on this before as well, is that there is a way for uh, to track your application uh, from the time you, uh, you you send it to the to, to when it's received by the local election board to when they send it back to you to when you then send in your ballot. And, and I certainly hope that we take a serious look at that because that, that will ease a lot of the folks' concerns. I don't know if these people did it intentionally or not. Uh, I simply view it as a, as a reminder that you're not supposed to do it twice, and let's make sure the system is more secure in November so folks have faith in the outcome and people can vote in the manner in which they wish to do so. All right. I, I'd like to move on. But before I do, Greg, two quick things. Number one, the, this, we do know of one person who uh, was yeah. very uh, uh, <laughs> vocal in saying, yep, I voted twice intentionally to show that the system was fraudulent. He was a Republican voter. And I think what Long County, he Long talked County. to Fox 5 News. Yeah. And he apparently will be prosecuted. Yeah, he said he told Fox 5 last week he, he did this to prove, quote, prove a point. Um, yeah. If I did it, how many other people did it? So um, he's proving a point and getting prosecuted at the same time. Uh, the and other well quick thing before we move on, just uh, let's let's uh, Greg also let's be make sure because in the long run, what really matters here is voters understanding their rights as November third approaches. So with that in mind, it is perfectly legal for you to have asked for an absentee ballot then decide to vote at a polling place right. as long as your ballot has not yet been either been received by the uh, uh, the your local voting officials in the county or or uh, what also can happen is that you may have submitted an absentee ballot you're not sure what happened to it you show up at your polling place and it's the election officials it's the polling place workers who are supposed to be able to guarantee uh, that you have, in fact, not already. Right, Greg? You're exactly right. And look, we we knock Fulton County a lot for all their uh, voting issues uh, that have been plaguing the Fulton County system for for years. But one of the things they're doing this year is they're creating a call center where poll workers will be able to reach someone to check on the status of these absentee ballots when voters attempt to vote in person. So it's one thing, one additional step some counties are taking uh, to, to smooth this process, because there's going to be a lot of voters who aren't sure if their if their ballots if, if their absentee ballots gone through yet, and so they might be wanting to kind of double check, and that's one way to do so. If, Finally, if can, as, as Edward Lindsay said, data, you real should quickly ch- on that real quick, um, and, and and that's why it's so important. Get back to a point I think Mary Margaret made to to make it easy for poll workers to check, because in the in the runoff. For instance, 623,000 people applied for an absentee ballot and received one, but only about 260,000 people actually utilized their absentee ballots. So to get back to the point that was raised earlier, it is extremely incumbent for the poll workers to be able to reach someone to see whether or not that vote was actually killed. 
Okay, um, we'll keep on top of this uh, as the election approaches and talk about whether Raffensperger finds any criminal wrongdoing and also uh, continue to remind you of how you can check to see if your absentee ballot has actually been uh, counted or not. Um, Greg, I want to move on to the uh, to what we call Senate race number two, the Kelly Leffler uh, seat to which she was appointed by Governor Kemp. Uh, interesting development in terms of how Republicans now seem to be really, really uh, uh, at odds with one another in the party. David Ralston, about a week ago, I think, you'll correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong, announced that he was endorsing Doug Collins in that Senate race. And as a result of that, you filed a story yesterday uh, pointing out that now as many as 40 other Republicans in the legislature have announced their endorsements for Leffler at, at the same time that constitutional officers seem to be lining up uh, behind uh, Leffler. Um, what's going on here, Greg? Yeah, that's nearly 50 state lawmakers, mostly in the in the Georgia House, who are backing Doug Collins. Um, and in a way, House Speaker David Ralston's endorsement kind of cleared the, paved, paved the path for them to show that uh, they could buck Governor Kemp. Um, now, Governor Kemp, to be sure, will be keeping very close eye on that list of supporters for Doug Collins, and there could be uh, it might be a very interesting legislative session next year. Um, but I think, you know, some folks said this was kind of an open secret that David Ralston was going to endorse Doug Collins. And surely he has been an ally of his and a close friend of his. But making the actual formal official step uh, to to endorse uh, Collins was a was a big deal in Georgia political world because it, it sets off that rift, uh, it deepens that rift that he has with Governor Kemp and makes it kind of formal. Um, and it's really going to shape the next two years of of Governor Kemp's term, because if there's more an open feud between him, there's already been feuding, but the, there's a deepening of that feud between him and probably the most sec- the second most powerful person in Georgia. Uh, it means that it'll be a lot harder for him, him to get his agenda through the legislature. Andrew, let me turn to you first. The, um, the reporting that Greg did suggests that one of the reasons, I mean, first of all, a lot of the House members, uh, Republicans, were remaining loyal to their leader, Speaker Ralston, but I think Bluestein also suggests that it was the response yeah. uh, to Ralston's announcement of the endorsement by the Leffler campaign that may have really irritated some of these Republican House members. Uh, the Leffler campaign essentially trashed Ralston, uh, reminded people of the controversy he was involved in when it came to uh, his role as speaker, getting continuances in criminal cases. So uh, maybe the Leffler people contributed to uh, this uh, big group of Republicans turning to Collins. Um, well, again, I don't know if I could speculate on that part. You know, I think in general it's been really sure. interesting, and I've been somewhat, you know, it's, I, I, just, I haven't completely under, I have understood, but I haven't completely understood Kelly Leffler's scorched earth campaign um, in going after Doug Collins. Like, I know she's trying to sort of create distinctions between her and Collins. She needs to, you know, burnish her conservative credentials. Uh, but, I, you know, I've said all along, I've actually been really surprised by the ways that she's gone about doing that. Um, it's as though she thinks that Doug Collins already doesn't have a political brand and a reputation. Um, and so it's not surprising that if she would go after Doug Collins for things like having been a defense attorney before or her surrogate for having been a defense attorney before, that, you know, she would then also go after David Ralston and then try to sort of suggest that they're both pretty swampy people. 
Um, but it's just a question of whether or not she actually has the bona fides yet to be able to make those kinds of claims. Um, and she certainly, you know, has her current position to be able to do that. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Collins doesn't have his own base of support that he's going to try to build on. If, if I can give any advice to Senator Leffler and her campaign, particularly the spokesman who came out with his scorched earth uh, response, is don't awaken the sleeping giant. Uh, endorsements in and of themselves <laughs> really don't matter that much. However, an endorsement followed up with uh, connections to a, um, a office holder's uh, grassroots campaign is extremely important. And what she has done here is, is awaken the sleeping giant of the state house members who have very intense local grassroots campaigns that they can then turn over to Collins. Just ask Governor Nathan Deal, uh, who uh, was way down in the polls uh, back in 2010 until he got the endorsement, the overwhelming endorsement of state house members uh, in, in his primary election and was able to utilize not just the endorsements, but the, the grassroots uh, connections that these House members had to catapult him first into the runoff and then into uh, the, prim the, 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 the primary, uh, the general election and his election. So, uh, you know, that was a, a bad blunder, quite frankly, by the Leffler campaign to awaken the sleeping giant that state House members can provide any candidate statewide. is always a blunder in my view and it was gratuitous nastiness both david ralston and i had happy years in the state senate but both he and i are house people house people now um i can describe with a lot of detail that i won't go into the difference between the house and the senate um trashing david ralston was incredibly dumb political move and i think she will pay for it uh, the house Phenomena is, is a fascinating grassroots, 180 people out there uh, seeing their constituents every single day. And as we've discussed before, I personally had, most of us in the House that served with Doug Collins had a very positive personal relationship, professional relationship with him. He was a good legislator, young guy, a preacher. Um, from the Air Force with uh, very high talent. And when David Ralston allowed him to give the devotional to the House, uh, the warmth and the affection for him was palpable. It was a mistake to trash the Speaker. All right. I, Mary Margaret, I've got to follow up with you on this because I guarantee you a lot of our listeners are now going to be uh, either posting on Facebook Live or going to be sending me emails. They find it hard to understand, given Doug Collins' Uh, a passionate, passionate defense of President Trump during the Judiciary hearing, uh, Committee hearings and other things. They find it cognitive dissonance to hear you talk about what a great guy he has been to work with. He played a cartoon character on uh, during the impeachment, a cartoon character loyal to a ridiculous behaving president in terms of his personal interaction. But I think it's the um, 20, 30 lawyers in the House that have a genuine respect, including David Ralston, for uh, arguments on the other side. He, he hurt himself, in, certainly in my constituency, um, in, around Decatur and Emory, uh, playing the cartoon character, defending uh, 
the president, but he his talent is risen in the Congress the same way his talent is risen rose in the House. Uh, he's he's a guy with some political talent, and uh, again introduced to the House when he first came to politics uh, as a as a preacher in the in the armed services. Andra, I want to go back to uh, your initial point about this, which is not understanding the scorched earth approach that Kelly Leffler is taking to uh, fighting Doug Collins. Um, you know, we all know, and we've talked about it on this show, or, or we think we know, that one of the reasons Governor Kemp chose her was that he thought that she might uh, be a force in trying to win back uh, white suburban women uh, bec- uh, who might be a uh, uh, interested in her election, uh, but she has taken such a hard line, contrary to what many people who have known her for years think is who she's been uh, in terms of her political thinking. Uh, and, and so what she's done is it, it, she's playing to the Trump base, obviously, and if Trump can't hold the base, if Trump's holding the base isn't enough for him to win Georgia, it's going to be trickier for her to win it as well, is it not? Or does the jungle election make a difference in that? Well, what she is trying to do is I think we would have seen a different Kelly Leffler if Doug Collins hadn't been in the race in the first place. And so what I think this is is her trying to out-Trump Doug Collins, right? And then, you know, in that sort of victory lap speech that President Trump did after uh, he was acquitted in his impeachment trial, right, he kind of pitted Leffler and Collins against each other. Um, And so... Uh, you know, they're both attempting to try to curry the favor or at least keep his 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 disdain at, at, at bay. Um, and so she thinks that in this race, you know, that she's focusing on the, you know, the Republican uh, portion of her electorate. And she's trying to outflank Collins on the right sort of end of the <laughs> spectrum by trying to gather more folks. But the problem is, is that Doug Collins is a credible conservative. And so that's what makes this more challenging. Um and this is, is what also sort of makes her strategy much more fraught because everybody knows who Doug Collins is, um, whether, you know, they're looking at his, 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 his work as a state legislator or his work as a member of Congress. And Kelly Leffler is burnishing a brand. And it's a question of whether or not they take her seriously, sort of presenting herself, you know, as a, you know, a solid Trumpian conservative. Yeah, the professor. Greg, is- Greg I've got to get to a break, but I want to check one more. I want to hold everybody off for a minute and get to this, Greg. Um, We've talked a lot about Leffler and Collins. Before we take this break, is it, we now see Raphael Warnock with a lot of TV now. He's up running lots of ads. He's trying to raise his profile. The polling that we have seen on him has not been particularly positive for him. Matt Lieberman has been out polling him in, in many instances. Um, are we, I mean, there's no way of knowing at this point, but to what extent, if the attention continues to be on Leffler and Collins, are we going to see a Democrat, whether it's uh, Warnock, Lieberman, or anybody else, uh, not in, in the runoff? I mean, there's a risk that a split Democratic vote um, means that it will be a Kelly Leffler versus Doug Collins January runoff. But I also expect uh, Reverend Warnock had his third out out third ad out today. I expect that as he continues to spend money on ads, 
which is the most important part of this campaign because there's no in-person campaigning really from Democrats. He just got on the trail this past weekend, but there hasn't been a lot of in-person campaigning from Democrats at all during the pandemic. So as he continues to spend money, he's been raising money. I think he'll start to separate himself from, from Matt Lieberman, who just doesn't have that same organizational or fundraising uh, acumen as, as Warnock does. So, so again, before we get to a break, uh, Ed, Edward, it does strike me that my question was sort of naive. I mean, clearly we're going to have a lot of Democratic voters uh, turning out. So the likelihood of a Democrat and a Republican competing in the runoff is fairly high, is it not, Edward? Yeah, it is. I mean, if, if, if I were to bet, I would bet that some some Democrat will make it into the runoff with, the, with one of the two leading Republicans. But we have seen this phenomenon before uh, in in jungle uh, primaries, in which um, suddenly, you know, in the final runoff, you end up having two people from one party rather than one from each party. We saw it, for instance, in uh, state Senate race six, uh, District six here in Buckhead in East Cobb. Mm-hmm. Uh, the exact same thing happened. So, yeah, I, I would expect Warnock to 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 move up. But then again, I would have expected him to move up by now already, and he hasn't done so. And so we'll just have to see whether or not he can actually light fire. All right. I don't mean to interrupt, but I am way late for getting to a break, and Amelia and Sam are, like, saying, would you do it already? So here it comes, our first break. We'll be right back on Political Rewind. Edward Lindsay, Mary Margaret Oliver, uh, Dr. Andre Gillespie, Greg Bustein with me on Political Rewind today. Um, Andre, l- let's talk about uh, what's been going on with the, uh, rep- the uh, Trump campaign in recent days. Uh, in the aftermath of the Republican convention, as you well know, uh, during the convention, uh, Republicans made this effort to show, to, to, to have African American speakers try to make the point that uh, President Trump is certainly not a racist. It's false to accuse him of being one. We saw uh, Herschel Walker uh, make that point. We saw Vernon Jones, kind of a separate matter altogether, but he was there doing it, uh, and others uh, making that point. And yet, Andra, since then, the president has been going out of his way to absolutely play to white conservatives um, in, in calling— uh, Black Lives Matter demonstrators, thugs. He's now called for an end to diversity training and race awareness training at federal agencies. He's saying that they should be defunded. He um, actually calls them a sickness that cannot be allowed to continue. He's called them, and he says that to suggest that the United States is an inherently racist or evil country or that any race or ethnicity is inherently racist or evil, uh, is uh, anti-American. Um, Andra, what is going on here? Um, well, uh, President Trump has been consistently um, inconsistent. Um, I wouldn't actually argue that he's being inconsistent, but he's been um, consistently inconsistent in his pronouncements with respect to race and with race policy. So while he will declare himself the least racist person you will ever meet, despite lots of evidence to the contrary, despite the fact that, you know, he will tout record low unemployment in black and brown communities or the first step back as things that he's done for African-Americans and things that should make black people want to flock to him to vote. 
Um, uh, what he forgets is that he's done all of this other stuff. And I'm not even talking about the stuff that he was accused of doing before he was president, but just since he's been president of the United States, that would negate that. So whether it is maligning developing countries, which are largely of color, calling them asshole countries, well, whether it's telling the squad to go back to where they came from, um, even though three of the four were born in the United States, um, whether it is turning law and order from a dog whistle into just a clanging bell. Um, all of these things negate the image that he was trying to put forward. And I think one of the things that was really interesting, I mean, we certainly saw the parade of people of color who were proclaiming that Donald Trump wasn't a racist. But the way that they talked about racism, and I think the where we see the divide um, in American society, is whether or not people is the difference between interpersonal racism versus systemic racism. And most Americans agree that interpersonal racism is bad and they can identify it. So systemic racism is where we get the debate, and this administration has completely repudiated the idea of systemic racism, um, even though there's lots of evidence to suggest that it's still there. And so that's how they could say that with a straight face at the Republican convention. That's also why they would go against having diversity training. And, and, and you know, and this is evidence of what Robin DiAngelo calls white fragility. Like any time, like you point out that something is racist, people all of a sudden get like their their, uh, you know, the hair stands on their necks and they start to get super defensive about it. But that's sort of evidence of the problem. And I know it's hard. Um, I, I was talking about started a conversation about whiteness in my own class this week, uh, which is on uh, race and identity in this election. Um, and I could tell that it was like, you know, you know, it's, it's not the most comfortable conversation. So when we return to it next week, it's going to be interesting. Um, you know, just sort of as a point of the side, I wanted to show sort of the pervasiveness of sort of whiteness as opposition to blackness. In American culture, so I actually showed them the end of the jazz singer, um, and so uh, and and I could tell that one. I mean, I didn't know, I didn't think the students actually, you know, had ever seen the movie before, but just this idea of watching white white immigrants become American by making fun of black people um, and saying that this is one of the most important movies ever in American history still will be because it is the first talking movie, right? Like they, like I could just see sort of wheels turning, and it was like, oh uh, yeah. This is going to be an interesting conversation as we go forward. So, all right, so Mary Margaret, I think Andre just said some, some, a lot of really interesting things. But here's one of the things I heard. So when Herschel Walker gets up at the Republican National Convention and says, I've known Donald Trump for 30 years and tells this story about how Trump had him he, take his kids. They went as, a, as families to Disney World together. She's talking about interpersonal uh, race relations in that case. When it comes to diversity training, anti-racist training that virtually every major company, certainly in Atlanta and across the United States, uh, does, that's an attempt to deal with systemic racism. And for Trump to turn his back on that and suggest that it's anti-American, uh, I think is really, really troubling. Mary Margaret? It's, it's very troubling, and it's very uh, reflective of not only him personally, but in a broader sense, the Republican Party, um, to me, in my view. Um, if you're worthy poor, if you're an acceptable poor, if you're a poor person, a black person that we know and that we love, like Herschel Walker, he's a perfect example. Uh, he has uh, the discipline, the hardworking, the talented, the black uh, young man who uh, cheered us, made us all cheer, and now is a successful businessman. He's acceptable. We we love him. 
and um, not so much Vernon Jones, but Herschel Walker. And the, the, the woman, I remember the woman who, in the Republican convention, she took advantage of the training. She got herself her certificate. She became, she's worthy. The Republican attitude that I'm going to choose who's the worthy poor or who's the worthy black person uh, and deny systemic racism is profound in uh, my view of how the president conducts himself on a daily basis of insulting people, groups of people, gratuitously in a daily way. Edward, how do Republicans who do not share the president's approach to race uh, contend with this as the election uh, moves forward in the final eight weeks? Well, I think we, we say that we do uh, disagree with them. And, and I would I take somewhat umbrage at, at the broad stroke about Republicans as a general rule. Uh, you know, denying the realities of the difficulties of race in America, because I think a lot of Republicans have been working very hard to break down that that barriers as hard as any Democrat. Uh, but we, and, and, but the, what a lot of Republicans will point to is that, you know, contrary to some of the the folks on the left who want to portray America as a this dystopian society that is hopelessly enmeshed in and racism for which we can never emerge, want to instead point to an America that has fought very hard over the last uh, few centuries to reach where we are now and needs to continue uh, to do what Martin Luther King talked about, which was uh, continue that arch toward greater justice so that we can judge people by the character uh, of their heart and not the color of their skin. Uh, but you know, Trump is 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 someone who who I find aggravating uh, because uh, he uh, oftentimes steps on what I think is is a worthwhile message. For instance, uh, distinguishing between uh, protesters who are seeking uh, racial justice from uh, those that cross the line into uh, looting or violence of some sort or disagreeable behavior that's counter. Uh, what, what we all need to do is, is, is look at this, this issue and go, okay, where are we now and where do we need to get to? One concern I have, for instance, and I'm going to change the subject slightly, Phil, if I may, to, to where do we go from here? Uh, you know, uh, Taylor Branch's uh, three-volume study on the civil rights movement highlighted the different roles of Hosea Williams and Andrew Young. Hosea Williams' job was to, quite frankly, galvanize and get to the streets. Andrew Young's job was to then take the next step and walk into the room and come up with solutions. I'm still looking for those, uh, those of us on both sides of, uh, of the political aisle to be the ones to come into the room and play the role of Andrew Young and start coming up with solutions. That's my frustration with where we are Greg, right now. I'm not seeing that, that, that movement. I, Greg, I think Edward makes a very important point. Uh, it is certainly true that not all Republicans are lining up with uh, Donald Trump on the way he's dealing with race uh, right now. Uh, and, and I do think it's important that we point that out. And in fact, Greg, I would suggest that it's we haven't heard a whole lot from some Republican candidates who have here in Georgia who have so routinely aligned themselves with President Trump in so many areas and now are steering relatively clear of him, whether it's about race or other things that he's doing right now. Greg? 
Yeah, I mean, and look, when you when you want to have those productive conversations, it's very hard when the when the divide is being stoked from the upper echelons of the of the White House. Um, so it's hard to it's hard to push past that divide. But Bill, what you're saying is interesting because um, look at the Senate races in Georgia as that contrast. Kelly Leffler, Doug Collins, they're both jockeying with how close they can be with President Trump. And then you look at David Perdue, who long kind of established himself yeah. as one of the, the president's most loyal allies in the U.S. Senate. He hasn't appeared in a single ad for David Perdue yet this cycle. David Perdue got sur- had surgery during the RNC, knee surgery, um, you know, that, that he needed to have, but uh, timed it for around the RNC as well. So that shows you how his message in a, in a more general election uh, rather than the special election in the other Senate race is starting to change a little bit on President Trump. Uh, it's exactly who I was thinking of when you mentioned when I said that was David Perdue stayed clear of President Trump uh, so far. Uh, Got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a minute. Edward Lindsay, Mary Margaret Oliver, Andre Gillespie, Greg Bluestein for the last few minutes of our show today. Greg, I do want to get to something we're not going to be able to get to in depth, but we'll have time to do it on other shows. Um, it's it, it's in keeping with what we just talked about, with the president uh, no longer differentiating between peaceful demonstrators in the streets demanding social racial justice and uh, the small groups of people who are, in fact, uh, being violent. Uh, what's interesting is that the latest rounds of polls by organizations like The Economist and YouGov, uh, Morning Consult, Politico, they show that the, the, the public's response to how they view the, the protests in the aftermath of the Jacob Blake shooting in Kenosha and the George Floyd killing in Minneapolis have, has changed a bit. There isn't quite as large a percentage of Americans who, who think that the peaceful demonstrators are uh, correct in, in the way they're uh, behaving or they don't feel as favorable. They still think it's the right of people to protest, but the percentages are changing just a bit. But at the same time, the polls show that uh, most people don't think Donald Trump is the guy who's going to be able to fix it. It'll just get worse. I think that's interesting, Greg. Yeah, a very complicated uh, a, a path for Donald Trump to, 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 because it looks like the law and order message from the RNC that we heard over and over again, uh, even before and after that, um, is starting to set in with some voters. Um, but at the same time, um, it, many are concerned that he's not the guy who can bring any more peace. And, and it, it's interesting, too, because, um, you know, he, he his argument has been that Joe Biden, under Joe Biden presidency, there will be no law and order. Um, but at the same time, he's the president right now. Right. And so what, what is he doing to, to, to bring calm to the situation? Andre, I didn't dig down in these polls, but you've seen them yourself. What do you make of them? Um, so, you know, I think that this is a matter of interpretation. And it, I think this is sort of reflective of President Trump's general approach to science. So I think what they seized upon was the number that said that there were fewer people who were sympathetic to Black Lives Matter um, over the course of the summer as the protests war on. And so just because people might have been getting tired of the protests didn't necessarily mean that they were going to be receptive to a law and order message. But President Trump latches on to the one data point that's convenient for him, whether or not it's scientifically accurate. I'm not saying that this isn't scientifically accurate in this particular case. And then he runs with it and then goes towards his baser instinct. And so that is the problem 
um, you know, that we have there is that people don't put data in context. They misinterpret data. Um, they don't understand exactly what it's telling them. And, you know, this time he's doing it at great danger, both perhaps to his campaign, but then also just to sort of the tone of, of, of our culture. If I could just go back to, to, to one point, Edward, I just wanted to just let you know that when I made that comment about perceptions of, of systemic racism and, and other kinds of things and, and, and racial resentment, I wouldn't say it if I didn't have data behind me. And so I'm actually happy to show you offline some data that we've collected and we'll collect some more <laughs> in the future that will kind of sort of demonstrate my point. So. All right. All right. We'll have that discussion on a future show. Let me get, let me finish. We're getting kind of short on time. Um, all right, Edward, you first, and then Mary Margaret, weigh in on this notion of the people not being quite as sympathetic to Black Lives Matter, but not seeing Trump as the answer to law and in order in the streets. Well, first off, uh, Andre, I'm not sure, sure if, I, if I said that, that I didn't believe in systemic racism existed. I'm just simply saying that I believe that we've made progress. And that, but I do recognize that we need to make more progress. But to the point, a couple, couple of real quick points, because I know we're short on time. One is that if there's an interesting Georgia poll that does show that after the, the convention, uh, President Trump did sort of build up a six or seven point lead. That was a landmark WSB poll. Secondly, while, while it is true that nationwide polling doesn't show that this law and order argument is working, that doesn't mean that the issue of law and order isn't important. It isn't important across uh, political and racial lines. Living in the city of Atlanta and being on a, on a few Facebook pages with listening to folks who across the ideological line who live within the city of Atlanta, law and order is a big issue that may not play within the presidential race, but is likely very much to play in uh, more local races this year and in the uh, race next races next year in the Atlanta City Council and and mayor's race, uh, and that's across Mary Margaret. The let me line. Mary Margaret. Let me give you a last chance here. I'm amused at uh, Andre's description of the president's regard for science a little bit. Violence is ugly. <laughs> uh, it's very ugly. The uh, Kyle Rittenhouse ugliness of a minor. 17-year-old carrying an AR-15 delivered to a protest site by his mother across state lines is an ugly image. Public safety is important, but the president exacerbates the pain of the violence in every utterance that comes out of his mouth. It's dramatically, it's significant the way in which he always goes to the lowest denominator, always goes to the low bar. Violence is ugly, and he makes it more ugly in an intentional way. Greg, that's one of the reasons I think it's uh, this whole issue of government agencies canceling diversity training efforts to try to understand the dynamic among uh, uh, their employees. For, as, for instance, if the government agencies are black and white, uh, minorities of other uh, stripes, and, and, and to cancel them is to continue the pain, Greg. It's stoking the divide, and, and by pivoting more to his core conservative voters, it risks alienating the suburban, more moderate voters who helped him win in 16. All right, we are completely out of time. Greg Bluestein, Edward Lindsay, Andre Gillespie, Mary Margaret Oliver. Andre just sent us data to prove her point about systemic racism. Can't wait to read it, Mary Margaret Oliver. Sorry we didn't get to talk about vaccines as you wanted to today, but you know what? You'll be back in the eight weeks between now and the uh, November 3rd election, and we'll talk to you about it as we move forward. I'm Bill Nygut. We're out of time. 
uh, today. See you tomorrow. And in the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and get a flu shot, for goodness sake. Bye-bye, everybody.